You may be seated. <clears throat> I want to take just a moment. Um, I mentioned our guest today, but I wanted to take a moment just to introduce him a little further and to pray uh, for you, Gavin, as we do. Gavin, as I mentioned, is the, is the campus minister at Tennessee Tech with our denomination. Instead of sending a pastor to a church like this, sometimes our presbytery often will send a pastor to a, a, a college campus, in this case, Tennessee Tech. Gavin grew up in Martin, Tennessee. He's already met uh, a mutual friend here, uh, Larry Thompson, who grew up nearby, and they've already swapped Martin, Tennessee stories, uh, UT Martin, then uh, RTS Charlotte, uh, where um, actually Gavin uh, got to know our daughter before um, we, I got to know Gavin. We just discovered that this morning, but uh, delighted to have Gavin, who moved to Clarksville, I mean to uh, Cookville a few weeks, months ago, years ago now, four, did you say? Two and a half, two and a half years ago, uh, to serve the university campus there. Uh, his wife, Shalane, and their three children uh, are planted there in that community, and uh, we're delighted to have him here with us th today as Nate is somewhere in Michigan preaching this morning. We're delighted, Gavin, to have you with us. Come on up here, let me pray for you uh, before we go further. Lord, thank you again for your goodness to us today through uh, someone like Gavin who steps into this community uh, of faith. Would you uh, use him for, our, for your purposes and for our good as we look together to your word? Uh, we commit this to you and ask you to open our eyes to see what it is you want us to see. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it is a real joy to be with you this morning. Um, let me get myself situated here a little bit. Um, yeah, so we've, we, as, as uh, Tony was just saying, I've, we've been in Tennessee Tech. We've been in Cookville now for about two and a half years. This is our third year of ministry there. And it's, a, it's an interesting time. Uh, you know, it's gone by fast. We feel like we just got there. But it's interesting because the, the freshmen that were, my, that were there my first year are now preparing in the fall to start their senior year. And so uh, that's really exciting and a little bit sad that this group of students I've been walking with this particular class for three years now. Uh, are getting ready to, to move on. But that's sort of the nature of campus ministry. That's kind of how it goes. Um, but before I read our passage this morning, I just want to say thank you, uh, Cornerstone, whether, you, whether or not you realize this or not. Cornerstone has been supporting RUF at Tennessee Tech since before I got there. I'm not sure how long. But uh, let me just say thank you for your faithful support and your giving and, and for uh, praying for our ministry. Uh, every day that I go to this campus, I am your representative, not only because I'm a PCA minister. I'm a, a member of Nashville Presbytery, sent out by Nashville Presbytery to Tennessee Tech. But also because you guys are, are part of our ministry. Y'all are, are funding our ministry there and, and assisting in that. And we are so grateful and so thankful um, for your help in that. And we could not do this work without uh, churches and, and individuals uh, who cared about the gospel work um, happening with RUF at Tennessee Tech. So thank you very much. Um, our passage this morning is, is Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. And just a brief word of sort of setting the context here before I read. Um, Jesus has been traveling around with the 12 disciples. He has been teaching and preaching and healing. And um, at, at one point he says, let's get in the boat and let's go across the Sea of Galilee. Okay. And then just before this, our passage picks up is when they're, they're traveling across the sea. There's the big storm. Uh, Jesus calms the storm. And then in verse 26, where I'm going to start reading, is when they land in this sort of Gentile area. So you can imagine the disciples kind of getting off the boat, kissing the ground, you know, so thankful to, to be back on dry land um, after that. So anyways, 
This is, uh, this is God's word. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let, him, to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man with from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed, then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him once again in prayer and ask him for his help. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we do come to you as helpless people, as people who need, are utterly dependent upon you for everything. Indeed, what do we have that, that we have not received from your hand? And so, Lord, as we look at this passage this morning, we ask that you would teach us from it. We, we confess that we need your help to understand it. We, we, we ask you, O oh Lord, that you would write its eternal message on our hearts. We ask that you would show us Jesus in this passage. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts here this morning would be pleasing in your sight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this semester in RUF, uh, we're, we, we do a sermon series every semester. Often it's a book of the Bible or something like that. This semester... We do our relationship series. It's covering romantic relationships and marriage, but also friendships and things of that nature. And so this past Wednesday night, in fact, I was just, we were, we were doing a talk on singleness. I did, I did a thing on singleness on Valentine's Day. And it was not a cruel joke for my students. Uh, it was intended to be encouraging, right? Singleness is a gift. Uh, and so, but as we were doing that, we were looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in that chapter, Paul is addressing the Corinthian church, and really, there's a lot of confusion among the Corinthians about how to live the Christian life. And they're asking him a lot of questions like, should, you know, if I get converted and become a Christian, but my spouse is not a Christian, should I divorce my spouse? You know, should I change, should I try to change jobs, my line of work, if I become a Christian? You know, and they're kind of really confused about a number of things, dealing with, especially with marriage and, and with relationships and singleness. And Paul is sort of walking them through these issues kind of gently, helping them understand, you know, what, what to do. 
But what we see in the Corinthian church is a lot of zeal for Jesus, a lot of enthusiasm, but also just a lot of confusion about what it looks like to live out the Christian life. And many of us may have felt that same way before. What, what does it look like to live in this world as a follower of Jesus? Do I have to, to leave everything, to you know, sell all my possessions and, and go to the mission field? Is that, is that the normative Christian life? Am I less of a Christian if I feel called to, to be an engineer or to be a lawyer or a stay-at-home mom or a mechanic? Does that make me less of a Christian to, to answer that call, to feel God calling me to that? Really, what, what, what we're interested in is this. What, what part do I play in the mission of Jesus if I don't feel like I've been called into full-time vocational ministry? What does that look like? How do I fit into Jesus' mission to this broken and weary and sinful world? So this morning, we're going to see in this passage the mission of Jesus, what his mission to the world is and how that includes all Christians, uh, both those who are called to full-time ministry of some, in some capacity and those who are called to be teachers and uh, doctors and lawyers and, and other things. So this morning, three points. Our, our first point today is this. The mission of Jesus is to seek people. The mission of Jesus is to seek people. We see that in verses 26 and 27. And, you know, as you read through the, the New Testament books, the gospel books, you see Jesus having a lot of encounters with a lot of different types of people, right? People who are hurting, people who are, are sick and diseased, people who are proud and self-righteous, uh, people who, in our, like the man in our passage, people who are demon-possessed. And what kind of people does Jesus seek? What kind of people is he looking for? Well, as Jesus himself tells us in Luke chapter 19, verse 11, he says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And as he tells us in Mark 2, 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to seek sinners. He came to seek the lost. Those, who, those are the people he wants. So what do we know about this man, this particular man in our passage? What do we know about him? There's a number of things we could probably point out, but let me just focus on three this morning, briefly. One thing we know is that he was a Gentile, right? He was not a Jewish man. Uh, this is a Gentile region. One key we know that is, uh, is that there's a herd of pigs there, right? Pigs were highly unclean animals for the Jewish people. And so the fact that these people are pig farmers means that they are not Jewish. Uh, they are Gentiles. And so what this tells us is that Jesus didn't just come to be a savior for the Jews. He came to break through racial and cultural lines. He came to save a diverse people for himself. So this man was, was an unclean Gentile, and yet Jesus sought him. Jesus went after him. Another thing we see about this man is that he was an outcast, right? Verse 27 tells us that for a long time he had worn no clothes. He had lived not in a house but in the, among the tombs. He lives in a graveyard because it's the only place he's welcome. It's the only place he can go. There's no, no one else to welcome him. No one wants him. And just imagine the sight of this man, right? Crazed, naked, uh, in a tomb, uh, hanging out among the tombs. And verse 29 tells us that at one point, some people had tried to help him by restraining him with, with chains and shackles, that this was, they were trying to help him out to sort of protect him from himself, but that he always broke through the restraints and fled into the desert. This is the kind of guy that if we saw him on the street, 
we would immediately call the police. We would hide our children. We would be terrified. And yet, this man, this, this outcast man, Jesus seeks after. Jesus moves to, towards. The last thing we see that we'll point out this morning about this guy is that he was helpless. He was totally on his own. It sounds like perhaps others had tried to help him, but, but there's no one else now trying to do that. He's alone. Uh, he is utterly uh, without help. There's nothing that he can do to change his condition. There's nothing he can do to improve his situation. He is, he is just totally and utterly helpless. And that's who Jesus came to seek. He came to seek the lost. He came to seek sinners. He came to seek the helpless. If you're a Christian today, it's because at one point in time, you realized your helplessness. You realized that, that you were unable to save yourself. You realized that there was no way for you to work yourself to God by your own efforts, by your own good works. There was no way for you to improve your spiritual condition. And you cried out to Jesus. And that's how you became a Christian. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you do feel helpless. And you feel a, a sense of just overwhelming sense uh, about your sins. You feel like your life lacks meaning and purpose, that perhaps you're spiraling into despair. Maybe the Lord Jesus is calling you from your helplessness today, calling you to himself. And see, Jesus seeks after folks like this. Jesus is, we don't see, um, you know, Jesus is not as much interested in the people who think they don't need help. He's not seeking those who think they have it all together. He wants those who see how needy they are to see how helpless they are. As the old, that old hymn says, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. That's all that's required to come to Jesus is to see and feel your neediness for him. So um, one, of my, one of my hobbies uh, is movies. I really enjoy movies. I like, my wife says I like weird movies. I like old movies. I like foreign movies. I'm a movie guy, okay? I'm the movie guy in our house. And uh, so a movie I recently watched, uh, maybe, maybe perhaps you've heard of it. It's an old 1950s Japanese movie called Seven Samurai, okay? Kind of a classic. It was, it was what the movie that inspired uh, The Magnificent Seven, if that's probably more a familiar more title for you. Um, and so anyways, in this movie... The Seven Samurai, there's this village of farmers, and they're about to be attacked by bandits. And these bandits are going to take all their food that they've, you know, been growing all year. And uh, they have no way to protect themselves. They are, you know, speaking of helpless, they're helpless, right? They, they have nothing to do. Uh, no, they're, they're not able to fight or attack, uh, defend their city, their town. And so they seek the help of samurai, right? These are like old warriors in Japan. And so they seek these samurai to come and help them. And so they get one guy to kind of agree to it. And he says, he kind of looks at the situation and says, you know what, we need um, six more. We need seven samurai. And that's where the title of the movie comes from, Seven Samurai. Uh, we need seven samurai to properly def defend this village. And so he starts to look for samurai and try to recruit them. And he kind of does these little tests and he's trying to like figure out, he's trying to find guys who are worthy. And he's looking for, he's looking for the bravest and he's looking for the brightest, and he's looking for the most competent swordsman uh, to help him to, defeat, uh, to, to defend this village. Jesus is also building a team, right? Jesus is building a kingdom. He, he is seeking people to go out on mission with him. But the Bible tells us something that's maybe strange to us and something that's humbling, that Jesus is not seeking for the best and the brightest. Jesus is not looking for the most competent. Jesus is looking 
for the weak and for the lost and for the helpless and the needy. Jesus is looking for sinners, folks just like you and me. And we even read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when Paul writes, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. That's who Jesus is seeking. One last thing to note about how Jesus seeks after this man. Notice the amount of effort that Jesus puts into seeking this guy, right? Um, in, our, in our passage, Jesus and his disciples cross a sea. They cross the Sea of Galilee. And it seems for the express purpose of just meeting this man, this man whose name we don't even know, that Jesus crosses the sea to interact with them because at the, at the end of the passage, they say, hey, we want, like the villagers are like, we want you to leave and they go back to Galilee. They cross back over. Jesus crossed the sea for this one guy. It was worth his time and his energy. It was worth their ship almost sinking in a storm. That's how much one person is worth to the Lord Jesus. And Jesus has done that for us as well. He left heaven. He came to earth. He put on flesh. He dwelt among sinful people like us. He was rejected, he was suffered, he died to seek and to save the lost. People like you and me, to seek and to save us. It was worth his time, it was worth the pain and misery, it was worth all of that to save a sinner like you, to save a sinner like me. So the mission of Jesus is to seek people. But our second point this morning is this, the mission of Jesus is to save people. The mission of Jesus is to save people. Now, perhaps you've been wondering about the issue of uh, the, sort of the demon possession here. I, that raises a lot of good questions. Um, I'm not going to deal with those, really. I'm not going to get into that much. I'm just going to leave that for uh, Tony to preach a sermon on sometime, I guess. Um, so, but what's clear from this passage is this, that demon possession really happened to this guy. And another thing that's clear is that Jesus uh, had complete authority in this situation. Notice how the, one of the demons addresses this addresses Jesus in verse 28. Um, he says this, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Total submission and fear to the authority of Jesus. Please do not torment me. He even comes, he even has correct theology, right? Addressing Jesus as Son of the Most High God. But he's not saying that in praise or in love, but he's saying it in fear. And when Jesus asked the guy, the man here, what, what, what's your name? The reply is legion, um, for there were many demons inside of this man. And as you may have heard before, a, 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 in the Roman army, a legion was between 3,000 and 5,000 soldiers. Uh, most scholars commenting on this passage agree that that's probably not meant to be an exact figure. It's just meant to communicate there were a lot of demons inside this, this, this man. And again, the, the demons plead with Jesus that he would not destroy them. Please do not send us into the abyss. But instead, they plead with him to be sent into this herd of pigs. Jesus gives them permission to do so. And this paints such a clear picture of Jesus' authority over the spiritual realm that these demons have to seek his permission to do this. And the demons enter the pigs and immediately drive them into the sea and drown them. 
And so, you know, I kind of would wonder when I would read this passage, why did, they, why did the demons just immediately drown the pigs? Like, what was, what was their goal? What, was, what, was their, what were they trying to accomplish there? And there's not any sort of definite answer, but I think there's probably some clues, maybe some good guesses here. I mean, one, we know that Satan loves to harm people, right? We see that all the way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Uh, we see that all through the Bible. Uh, we experience that in our own lives, right? Satan loves to harm and to hurt people. And so consider, you know, this village where... Um, pigs were a part of their local economy. This was part of their local, uh, this was part of their food, part of their livelihoods, and they've been destroyed. Perhaps also the demons uh, killed these pigs because they knew that it may turn the people in the town against Jesus. And we see at the end of the passage that they do, in fact, ask him to leave, partially out of fear, but maybe also, you know, out of some concern for what, what might be attacked next, what might happen to them next. But what we're seeing in this passage is not just an exorcism, What we're seeing here is salvation. When the people from the town come to the tombs, they find the man who was formerly demon-possessed. They find him clothed in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus, which is often in the New Testament, sitting at Jesus' feet is often a sign of submission to him. This man is, is, is changed. In verse 36, he's described as being healed, but the Greek word that's used there could also be translated as saved. This man has met the Lord Jesus and has been transformed. He's different. He's changed. And how do the people from the town react to this miracle? Verse 35 says they were afraid. Verse 37 says they were seized with a great fear. They don't respond in worship. They don't ask Jesus for help. They're afraid. They ask him to leave. And they're scared because this is something that they cannot control. They recognize They are in the presence of someone who is beyond them, and they don't want anything to do with it. And so how do we know when we have encountered the real Jesus? Well, when when Jesus begins to feel like someone that we can't control, when Jesus doesn't fit into the nice little box in our lives that we want to sort of cram him in, when Jesus begins to challenge us on the things that we love more than him, that's how we know we're dealing with the real Jesus I love the Chronicles of Narnia books uh, by C.S. Lewis, and you're probably familiar with those. And you, There's a, a familiar scene in the first book, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, which I do count that as the first book still, uh, if you're aware of that debate of how to number these. Um, but anyways, there's this scene where Susan, this, little girl, this young girl who is in the fantastical world of Narnia, she's talking to this family of beavers, and they're telling her about Aslan. Aslan is the king. In this story, he is the Christ figure. He represents Jesus. And they're telling her about Aslan, and they they tell her Aslan is a lion. And Susan is very frightened to hear this. She's frightened by this news. And she says, oh, is is he safe? And Mr. Beaver replies to her, no, of course he's not safe. But he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. And so often we want Jesus just to be safe. We want a Jesus who isn't going to step on our toes we want a Jesus who, who, who isn't going to wage war against the idols of our heart. We want a Jesus who is easy and, and never really asks much of us. Because I think we realize deep down, if it's true that we were totally and completely helpless uh, before we were, we, we were saved, that Jesus is the one who did it all, if that's true, which the Bible says it is, the gospel says that's true, then we realize that we owe him everything. right? Just as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. 
Jesus has, has bought us. He has sought us and bought us, as that old hymn says. Right? And we realize that if that's true, then I owe him everything. And so Jesus is seeking people for his mission, and he is saving people for his mission. And in fact, it's the salvation of sinners like us that is at the heart of Jesus' mission to this world. As he tells us himself in Matthew chapter 20, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's why Jesus came, to seek and to save, to give his life as a ransom, to invite sinners like us to rest in his finished work, to put our trust in him, to make him the treasures of our hearts and our lives. And this morning, the real Jesus invites us to himself, to be saved, to be transformed, to be forgiven, to become a new creation, to find real meaning for our lives. He's not safe, but he is good, and he is the king. So the mission of Jesus is to seek people and to save people. And finally, the mission of Jesus is to send people. Our last point this morning. So the people ask Jesus uh, to leave after all of this. After everything they've seen, they want him to go. And this man who has been healed and, and saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus, he begs Jesus to let him accompany him. In verse 38, he begs him to let him go on the boat. And Jesus says, no, you can't come. And this is really interesting to me, right? That, that there are three requests, at least, given to Jesus in this passage. The demons first make a request. They don't send us into the abyss. Please send us into those pigs. And Jesus says, yes. And, and he does that. The people in this town ask Jesus to leave. They're afraid of him. Please go. Please leave. And Jesus says yes, and he, he agrees, and he does that. And then here's this guy, and he asks Jesus that he could go with him, that the man that Jesus has just saved, that he can accompany him on the boat and go with him. And Jesus says, no. No, you can't. Why is that? Is Jesus being rude? Is he being angry? Um, is, no, it, that's not the case. Uh, we see in verse 39 that Jesus has another plan for this man. Look at verse 39 with me. Jesus says to him, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Maybe this man wanted to go into the ministry, right? Maybe he wanted to accompany Jesus and be a disciple. Maybe he wanted to be in the thick of it and to be a, a part of the action and to see all the marvelous things that Jesus was going to do. He wants to hang out with Jesus and see it all. But Jesus says, no, return to your home. Tell people how much God has done for you. Matthew Henry comments on this passage and says this, We must sometimes deny ourselves the satisfaction, even of spiritual benefits and comforts, to gain an opportunity of being serviceable to the souls of others. Perhaps Christ knew that when the resentment of the loss of their swine was a little over, they would be better disposed to consider the miracle and therefore left the man among them to be a standing monument and a monitor to them of it. Jesus left this man so that he would be a standing monument amongst them. That he would be an ever-present reminder that Jesus was here. That Jesus transformed this guy. He is a constant picture of God's grace in their midst. You can imagine the guy walking down the street, right, just saying, hey, do you remember when I used to be naked and live out in the tombs? Remember that? Um, and to tell people, let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you where I've come from. Let me tell you who changed me, who transformed me. 
He met Jesus and he was never the same after that. Perhaps some of you in this room, are, are the Lord is calling to, to, to serve him in full-time ministry. That, that may be true. Maybe the Lord is calling you to be a pastor or to serve in some sort of full-time ministry capacity, to be a missionary or something. Um, but most likely that's not going to be all of the people in the room here. Um, but here's a call that is given to all of us as Christians, to everyone. Go to where Jesus has called you and tell them how much he has done for you. How Jesus sought you and how he saved you. You are called to be a monument in your workplace, in your school, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your community. You are called to be a monument to God's grace in the midst of the people there. That's what Jesus is calling you to do and me. And so if you are a child of God, if you've had an encounter with Jesus, your life has been transformed. You have a story to tell, a story of how Jesus saved you, how he brought you from death to life. And that's what Jesus calls us to do, to tell others how much he has done for us. And you might say, listen, I'm a Christian. Yes, those things have happened to me. I've been, I know I've been changed, but I don't have a story like this guy. This guy's got this dramatic you know, crazy story. I don't have anything like that in my life. My story is boring compared to this. But here's what John Calvin writes about this passage. He says this, in the person of one man, this guy, this demon-possessed guy, Christ has exhibited to us a proof of his grace, which is extended to all mankind. Though we are not tortured by the devil like him, yet, he, yet the devil holds us as his slaves till the Son of God delivers us from his tyranny. Naked, torn, and disfigured, we wander about till he restores us to soundness of mind. It remains that in magnifying his grace, we testify our gratitude. You may not have been like this man. You may not have, have had this sort of story, uh, being demon-possessed, naked, living in a graveyard. But you and I were spiritually dead. We were in a graveyard. And God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive in Christ. And Jesus has brought us from darkness to light, from death to life. And here's where Jesus' mission becomes our mission, right? That we, we were brought into, this, into his mission to the world, and he sends us out. Just as this man moves from the graveyard to the mission field of his town, we have been called to the same. From being spiritually dead to being alive in Christ, to tell others the story of God's grace in our lives to tell others how much Jesus has done for us. Every Christian is called to this. So whether you are a Christian student right now, a Christian doctor, a Christian mother, um, a Christian mechanic, or whatever your calling may be, your calling is to go to the place that God has put you to tell others how much Jesus has done in your life. Um, so I have three small children, as was mentioned earlier. I have a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. They're a lot of fun. But a lot of, that means I, I'm ingesting a lot of like children's books and movies all the time. And so a lot of, uh, you know, I think I have more Pixar illustrations, sermon illustrations than anything else just because that's what we're watching in my house. Um, there's a great book that, that I love um, called The Runaway Bunny. Uh, it's a classic. You've probably heard of it. And so in this story, there's a little bunny and he, he decides one day he's going to run away from his mother. And he tells his mother as much, I'm going to run away. And his mother said, and, the, and the, he keeps saying he's going to like transform, magically transform into these other things, okay? The book doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's, a, it's a worth your time, I think. Um, and so he says, you know, like, 
Mama, I'm going to run away and, and become a fish. And the mother says, well, if you become a fish, then I'll become a fisherman and I'll fish for you. So the bunny says, well, then I'm going to become a rock on a, on, high up on a mountain. And she says, well, if you become a rock high on a mountain, then I'll become a mountain climber and I'll climb to you. And he says, well, then I'll become a plant that's hidden in a garden. She says, well, then I'll become a gardener and I'll find you. He says, well, then I'll become a, a bird and fly away. And she says, well, I'll be the tree that you come home to. And she says, finally, he says, I'll be, well, then I'll, I'll be a sailboat and I'll, I'll go away on the, on the ocean. She says, well, I will be the wind that blows you to where I want you to go. And at the end of the story, the little bunny says, well, shucks, I guess I just better stay here and be your little bunny then. Um, <laughs> the, runaway, the runaway bunny realizes he's not going to get a better deal anywhere else. He's not going to find anything better than the love of his mother. And you and I aren't going to find anything better than the love of the Lord Jesus. The love that he has for helpless, weak sinners like us. We can look and look and look, but there's nothing out there. This is the story of your salvation and mine, right? That Jesus pursued me, even when I ran away. That Jesus saved me, even when there was nothing about me to attract him to me. He saved me. When I was helpless and had, had no, nothing, to, nothing to offer. And now Jesus sends us into our community. He sends us out and says, go tell others how much God has done for you. And that's our call. May he give us the grace we need to obey it. Amen. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the story of grace in this man's life in Luke 8. We thank you for the story of grace in our lives as well, the story that you are still writing of your grace to us and how you have sought us and saved us and how you are sending us to share this news with others. Lord, we pray that you would uh, send us out, that you would remind us just how much we have, how much we've received, how much you have done for us, and let that be the, the, the song that we love to sing from our lips. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.